and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we come before your word humbly, trusting that your spirit is at work to make the word of God piercing to our hearts. And we pray that you would do that now, that your spirit would come and that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Well, over the next few weeks, we began this a couple weeks ago, we're looking at Acts chapter 2, and we're looking at the early church and what the gospel-centered church is and does. Last week, we considered that the early church and the church today is to be a learning community. In Acts 2, we just read that the early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. This morning, we consider another facet of what the gospel-centered church is and does, and that is that we are a confessing community, a confessing community. If I had to guess uh, as to the most unpopular topics that one could teach on in church in a Sunday school class or one could preach on, I think evangelism would be up there at the top of the list. But this morning we have to consider it because it's here in the pages of the New Testament. I do wonder, have you ever been in that situation where you know you ought to share your faith, but you're fearful to do so? You're tongue-tied. You feel inadequate. There's a host of reasons that we have this fear, not to mention the fact that evangelizing, seeking to convert others is so unpopular today. But we have to talk about this because it's here. The church was growing rapidly because Christians were confessing their faith. And that is one of the first things we have to realize is that confessing the faith is for all of us. In Acts chapter 8, Christians are scattered because of persecution. Saul was ravaging the church. And believers go from Jerusalem, the, the center of the Christian growth the Christian movement, and it says that they went about preaching the word. And there it's pretty clear that we're not just talking about the apostles, the 12, but we're talking about ordinary Christians. So confessing the faith is for everyone. But what do we need to grasp that they grasped to make confession a regular part of our lives and something that we delight to do, that we long to do, and that we feel equipped to do. What is it? God has given the church a message. This morning we're going to see four things about the Christian confession that I think will help us to become better confessors. We're going to see the fact of the gospel, the fulfillment, the king, and the kingdom. Fact, fulfillment, king, and kingdom. First thing is that the the early church preached, they confessed the faith as fact. 
19 times in the book of Acts, Luke describes the Christian messengers as witnesses. It seems to be sort of his favorite uh, term, title, for Christian preachers. Witnesses. Witnesses. This is, as it is today, a courtroom term for those who saw what happened. And the Christian confession in Acts, if you were to boil it down, we could say many things and we will say many more, could be simply stated as this. We saw something. We saw something. Not we felt something or we have realized something, although these things are true, but first that we have seen something. It's all over the place in the book of Acts. In 420, the apostles Peter and John are on trial and they say, sorry, we can't help but speak of what we have seen and heard. And in 433, we read that the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection. Or one of my favorites, at the very end of the book of Acts, Paul is on trial before Festus, and he says, after being accused of being out of his mind for preaching the gospel, I'm not out of my mind. I'm speaking true and rational words. None of this has been done in a corner. They preached facts. And really, this is the only way that we can explain the startling claims of the gospel as it was preached back then. I think that the shock value of the crucified Savior can be lost to our ears. We're used to it. We're used to images of the cross. It's not quite so offensive to us as it once was. The reality is that the Christian confession was then and is now that our Savior was crucified as a criminal. And not only that, the early church emphasized that his death was the death of one cursed by God. Cursed by God. One commentator said it this way, the apostles surely would never have put such emphasis on the crucifixion if they had not come to terms with the other reality, the resurrection. And this is, I think, one of the easiest ways as con confessors of the faith that we can cut through the fear and the objections. Our task is simple, to proclaim that something happened. Something happened in history. Jesus Christ died and rose again. The fact of the resurrection. We hear and we think, well, people just don't want to hear how they ought to live. They have their own system of beliefs that, that works for them. And we hear that from people. Our message should be, but have you considered that Jesus rose from the dead? We hear, look, I don't need a religion to live my life well and to be a good person. Yes, but have you considered that Jesus rose from the dead? Hey, I just can't believe in a God who allows so much evil and suffering in the world. But have you considered that Jesus rose from the dead? That this really happened? You know, recently I've begun to read uh, the Narnia books to my son. And uh, this is definitely the most fantastical set of, of books that we've, we've ever read. Um, and he regularly asks this question, not only about these books, but about anything we read, any story I tell him now. He asks, Daddy, did that happen in our world? 
Was, was that our world? Or did they live in our world? Friends, the first thing about the Christian confession is this. Something has happened in our world. Jesus Christ died and was risen. The Christian confession is a confession of historical facts. So that's the first thing we see about Christian confession. The second is fulfillment. That the early church preached that the gospel, that Christ crucified and risen, was the fulfillment of what the human race has longed for and especially what the Old Testament long proclaimed. This is very obvious when the uh, early Christians are preaching to a Jewish audience. So in Acts 2, Peter's in Jerusalem preaching to Jews, and he quotes from Joel, from the Psalms, and from Isaiah, and he says, this, that's your, this that you're seeing is that that God promised then. In Acts 3, Peter and John are preaching in the temple, and they put it succinctly, what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, he thus fulfilled. In Acts 7, Stephen's whole sermon is just a retelling of Israel's story and says this is the fulfillment of all of that. But it's not just in sermons to Jews that we see this theme of fulfillment, and that's important for us today. I think the best example of this is in Acts chapter 17, where Paul is summoned to the Areopagus in Athens. The Areopagus was the center of ancient philosophical thought. And uh, Paul goes before these philosophers, probably before a council, a council of sort of the thought police of the day, and he testifies to the gospel. He gives his witness. In Acts 17, 22, we read this. Paul said in the midst of the Areopagus, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He goes on to speak of the one true God who created heaven and earth and who has established Jesus as king. He has appointed a man to be the judge of all the earth. You see, Paul could do that. He could point not only to the Old Testament promises, which are divinely inspired promises that reach their fulfillment in Jesus, but he could also point to the deep longings of every human heart that Jesus is the fulfillment of those longings. He is the fulfillment. You see, we are tempted very often in the church today to think that the early church had it in some ways easier, you know, because we see the growth that they had and we think, well, you know, if I had been with Jesus, if I had heard the apostles, if I, you know, if I went to First Jerusalem Church, man, I would be preaching boldly. I would be confessing my faith boldly like they did. They had it, I mean, they had it easy, right? Of course, that's, that's not quite true. The persecution of their day and their, their, the fact of their boldness makes us look like wimps compared to them. The reality is that in their day as in ours, there were both bridges and barriers to the gospel. 
There were barriers then as there are now, things that cause us to fear, to hesitate, to confess our faith. But there were also bridges. And we see Paul doing, calling attention to one of those bridges in Acts 17. That every human heart has deep longings, that they are searching for something. And friends, let's never forget that as we go confessing the faith before the world, that everyone has a hungry heart. And what's on offer in the world leaves people starving. It's been said that hope is a good breakfast, but a bad, sup a bad supper. And that is how many people live. They live their lives with morning hope, but with unfulfilled longings at the end of the day that leave them hungry. And the gospel is the greatest meal on offer. Be confident of that. The gospel is the fulfillment of all of our deepest longings, whether people know it or not. And that's part of our confession. We confess fact, we confess fulfillment, but then we might ask, well, what what were the facts? What was the fulfilling message? What is the content of this confession? And so quickly, I want to sum up the church's confession with two headings. They preached the king and they preached the kingdom. In the very beginning of Acts, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he's still around. In Acts 1, verse 3, we read this. Jesus presented himself alive to them, to his followers, after his suffering, by many proofs, there's the facts again, appearing to them over 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He presented himself and he spoke about the kingdom. And then the very last verse of the book of Acts, we read of Paul in prison in Rome under house arrest, people coming to visit him every day the text says, and it says he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the message. This is the message that we confess as fact and fulfillment. Jesus and the kingdom, the kingdom and Jesus. And I want to look at these in those, that order, the, ki the king and the kingdom. So in Acts 8.35, Philip preached to an Ethiopian who was interested in the God of Israel. And it says that he preached Jesus. A more literal translation would be he evangelized him, Jesus. Paul, is, or Saul, as soon as he was converted to the Christian faith, it says he immediately proclaimed Jesus. They preached Jesus. They gave people the man, Jesus. They preached out of their personal connection with Jesus and that he was one to be known. Leslie uh, Newbigin, a famous missionary and Christian theologian, put it like this. He said, the Christian message is akin to the person that everyone has been speaking about, what happens when the person that everyone's been speaking about enters the room? You know, that awkward moment when you're all sitting around speaking about somebody and there they are standing in the doorway. You change the way you're speaking, do you not? You don't, you don't speak the same way. You obviously change uh, your tone 
and the whole uh, manner of your speech, your pronouns. That's what the Christians did. They preached Jesus. They preached that God had entered the room, that he was here, that God was for us and with us, and by faith, he could be in us. They didn't preach a system of beliefs, political doctrine, a God that could be pondered, that we could wonder about, but a God that came and revealed himself in Jesus, a personal God, the infinite in human form. They gave people Jesus. And friends, when we confess the faith, even when we confess something as long as the Nicene Creed, and, and really as we were just saying it, 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 it struck me, how much space there is dedicated to Jesus. Have you ever, have you ever noticed that? You know, we, we, and in the Apostles' Creed as well, we talk about our, our belief in God the Father and in the Spirit, of course, but it is Jesus who makes God known to us, who is God in the flesh. It is Jesus that the apostles preached, that the early church preached, the God to be known, the God who entered the room. There was nothing on offer like this in the ancient world, and there's nothing on offer like this today. So they preach the king, and then secondly, they preach the kingdom, right? Paul on house arrest, he's teaching about Jesus, and he's preaching the kingdom. Good news of the kingdom. The Christian confession, brothers and sisters, has an animating vision of the future. That this king is preparing a home for us. That this king not only came, but became a servant for us. Suffered the rejection that we deserve so that we could be citizens of his kingdom. And that the inheritance that is ours is an inheritance in which the world itself is made new. A kingdom where self-giving love reigns, where justice and perfect peace reign. What we confess is that the king will come again to judge the heavens and the earth and that his kingdom shall have no end. You know, I recently learned that Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech uh, was never intended to have the whole I Have a Dream bit. <laughs> it wasn't planned. The night before the speech was given, he met with his advisors and they discussed the content of this momentous occasion, what he should be saying. And about nine months before, he had begun to use this language of the dream. But his advisors thought that he was beginning to maybe overuse it, and they didn't want him to sort of beat a dead horse. <laughs> they didn't want him to say, say that. They gave him a, a different manuscript, and he went to the lectern that day without the whole I have a dream bit. And uh, if you listen to the speech, as I'm sure many of you have, it's, it's kind of striking. I mean, as, I mean it, for, for MLK, he's struggling or stumbling a little bit in the beginning. Uh, his words aren't coming out that clearly. And they're very eloquent, great metaphors, all sorts of things like that that you'd want in a, in a good speech. But he's stumbling. And then he says something that elicits the, the applause of the crowd. 
And in the pause, one of his favorite gospel singers, Mahalia Jackson, who was behind him on stage, shouted out, tell him about the dream. Tell him about the dream. People who were there on stage with him could tell that he heard it. Because when Mahalia Jackson said, tell them about the dream, he pushed his notes aside and he began to preach. And friends, that is so true. It is a dream, a vision of the future that animates confession. And it is not a dream for us. It is a reality of the coming kingdom, the inheritance that is ours. So often we shy away from proclaiming the faith because we don't realize how fulfilling the king and his kingdom are. And that's why confessing the faith is not just something that we do out there. It's something that we do here every week. It's something that we do in the privacy of our own homes in silence to ourselves, we tell ourselves the gospel, we rehearse the gospel, we confess the faith to ourselves because we need that animating vision. We need to know that the dream is reality, that the kingdom is ours, that the king died for us to go and confess this faith. So friends, confess the king, confess the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for the boldness of your apostles and their witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So often, the shocking truth that you came down, you entered the room and won for us an inheritance is lost on us. But would you send your spirit to bring these great truths alive to us, to make them real to us. And Father, this morning, as we come, we join our hearts together to pray for the advance of your kingdom and for all of these things. So let us join our hearts together in silent prayer for the following concerns. Let's ask God to fill the world with the knowledge of his glory especially praying for our mission partners, Don and Claire Lise Cobb, working with John Calvin Seminary in France. Let's ask the Lord to use Don's ministry to provide well-trained pastors to the French-speaking world. And let's pray for our local ministry partner, Brian Thomas, working with RUF at the University of Florida. Let's ask the Lord to give Brian and his family endurance as they prepare for another year of ministry on the campus at UF. Let's pray for all in authority especially for our mayor, Lenny Curry, that he will promote justice, restrain evil, and uphold integrity and truth in our city.
And let's pray for all those who grieve and suffer in body and mind within our congregation. Let's remember Carl Ashour, Barb Day, Louis Fosnett, Sue Forsythe, Elizabeth Garnett, Gar Gerganius, Hector and Vielna Harima, Wayne Noble, Sandy Reynolds, Jewel Smith, and Gina Young. Let's pray for the children and youth of Christ Church, asking God to bless them with the knowledge of his love for them in Jesus Christ. And let's close saying the prayer that our Savior taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.